Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. I recorded today's episode at the ACG LA Business Conference, where I sat down with Oren Winnick to talk about trends in wealth management, which he's observed firsthand as the Director of Investment Advisory at Experient. The November issue of Middle Market Growth Magazine will look at direct investing with a focus on family offices, and Oren had great insight into some of the emerging strategies that some families are using to invest their wealth. While reading up on Oren before our interview, I learned that he started his career in sports broadcasting, so I asked him about how he made the switch to financial services, and he also told me about his experience carrying the Olympic torch, which he had the chance to do during the Barcelona Olympics in 1992. Here is my conversation with Oren. I am here with Oren Winnick, the National Director of Investment Advisory for Experient, which provides investing, wealth management, and family office services for clients. And we are together on site today at the ACG Los Angeles Business Conference. Oren, thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Catherine. So a number of our podcast interviews have focused more on the buy side and the challenges of high valuations in the current environment for investors. But for sellers, that can really be an opportunity. Through your work at Asperient, have you seen an uptick in founders and entrepreneurs looking to exit their businesses and and take advantage of these high prices? No question. It's been a great time to be a seller. And the reality is many of these entrepreneurs and founders actually weren't planning on selling. It's just that valuations are so high that it kind of looks like the 90s. So in the 90s, you had founders, entrepreneurs getting phone calls. Uh, emails that they never anticipated getting. They ran a very good business. They built a business either as a family business or maybe it was one they only started several years ago with a great concept and they saw a great opportunity. Private equity, some strategics, found some interest and all of a sudden they're a very popular guy on the block. And so it is a, it's a very good time. And for founders or CEOs who have long been focused on running their companies, what are some of the considerations they should take into account as they think about their own financial futures and their personal strategy as they look to sell? Well, first off, they should uh, take a deep breath and say this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. They've accomplished a lot. Um, We like to really separate, I would say, the conversation maybe in two parts. One would be structure, and the second would be plan. What is the game plan? Um, as someone is looking at their financial, personal future and strategy, in terms of structure, if we were to unpack that a little bit, um, I'm talking about uh, a do-it-yourself model, uh, a single-family office model, or a multifamily office model. Uh, a DIY or a do-it-yourself model is really kind of the default. It, you know, it, it's kind of what many people end up doing without a, a real game plan. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, strong personality, entrepreneur, they like to be at the center of things, and sometimes they find themselves at the center of that. Um, you know, it becomes very challenging because typically they, they love their company or it's their family or it's uh, maybe a foundation or maybe it's another project and they find themselves in the center of an ecosystem uh, of minutiae of things that they aren't as interested in or maybe don't have the skill sets uh, to necessarily um, execute on it. So it's the email trail going from you know their corporate accountant to their personal accountant to the 
personal attorney, corporate attorney, you know, one or two of the investment um, institutions. It's tax loss harvesting. It's making a uh, payment from one trust entity to another trust entity and tracking all that. It's like, you know, do they really want to be at the center of that? So that's a do-it-yourself model. And for some, it might make sense. The second would be a single family office model. And so when people talk about family office, candidly, if you, you talk to 10 family offices, you'll probably get 10 different definitions. But essentially, it is where you have a dedicated team that you have hired. So you're an employer, whether you have real estate or it's virtual. You have some financial people that will help uh, evaluate investments, uh, typically in-house. You will have um, a legal staff, and you will also have um, a tax, um, you know, and a CPA staff as well. Um, typically, some bookkeepers um, also on the uh, the staff. You know, this is a you know a model that works for a lot of folks. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. It can be very expensive, and where we have found that it really works well is if in chapter two, after someone ends up uh, selling their company, they want to be a very active investor, almost turning their family office into a private equity firm. Mm -hmm. Having a team that is fully dedicated makes a lot of sense. You're, you're hiring up uh, maybe former investment bankers. Um, you're hiring up a, you know, a team from, a, from an investment bank um, uh, to help you evaluate. So that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. The last model, might sound some self-serving because that's where you know, I live, would be the multifamily office world. And this is where it, it feels much like a single family office, uh, but it, it'll have a, it's a little more cost effective mm -hmm. because you're sharing the scale um, and the resources uh, with other families. Sure. And so, you know, you don't have to worry about the career path of the individuals that work for you. You don't have to worry about any of those issues or real estate or any of that. You can kind of just focus on, on your life. And so for many uh, entrepreneurs that just kind of don't want to be in the minutia, that kind of model makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, and they might end up on the one-offs uh, looking at, uh, you know, doing some friends and family investing, and that's fine. But having kind of a multifamily office where they're able to uh, kind of aggregate talent and assets on their behalf, um, you know, kind of is a, is a decent compromise and a good solution. Mm -hmm. And the second part would be a plan. So first part is structure. So figuring out the right structure. Should it be you know, a do-it-yourself model, single-family office model, a multifamily office model? And then the second part is, what is the game plan? And the game plan really is, for many of these entrepreneurs, they had an incredibly successful business. They wrote a business plan, and then they hired up a, a C-suite team of executives to help them execute on that business plan. What is the business plan for all of this, meaning the rest of their life and everything outside the walls of their company. And in absence of having that, that plan in place that has metrics, that has uh, real goals, that has, you know, how are we to engage each other? What are the rules of engagement? What does governance look like? Um, and you don't have real definitions around that. It's hard to invest towards that, and it's hard to kind of manage towards that because what does success look like if you haven't defined it yet? Sure. And so, you know, how does that? How do all the pieces work to with each other? So it's the the rules of engagement with each of the team members. So you have attorneys, you have CPAs, you have investment professionals, you have controllers, all of those people. 
how are they going to be working as part of your plan? And then how are the family members going to be working with them? Hmm. How are the family members going to be working amongst themselves? So all of those things have to be thought through. Um, you know, and to actually define in your mind prior to working, regardless of who you do and which of the structures, um, you know, what success looks like. So, um, you know, what does that look like? What is the goal? What are you investing for in terms of lifestyle? What does lifestyle mean to you? Hmm. So it's obviously these people can afford a lot of things, but in terms of that particular goal, what does that look like? Let's define that. You know, people will say, I want to take care of my children. Okay, that's fine. What does that look like, though? And what does that really mean, taking care of them? Does taking care of them mean I'm going to buy them one home, two homes, a salary of this? And then if you did all of that, how do you then inspire them to be productive members of society? And so it's figuring that out. Do you have any other family members that you would also want to take care of? What does that look like? And what does that really mean? So let's actually get that granular in understanding that. Mm -hmm. Do you have family members that maybe you weren't thinking about taking care of, but maybe are struggling financially mm -hmm. or could really use this and it would be a meaningful gift? Would you want a gift? Would you want to loan them? And prior to it becoming emotional where it's a reverse inquiry, get that all out there. Mm -hmm. Are there friends of yours that now know you've done very well that might come to you and say, hey, I would like you to co-invest in something hmm. or I might need help with this. What are the parameters for you to engage with them and what does help look like? And to really help define that before the process starts is, uh, is not only a helpful exercise, it's critical. So kind of putting that all out on the table. Absolutely, because it's nearly impossible, just like they had a very successful business plan. How do you solve for that personal plan without having any of the criteria thought through? And for families that have generated wealth through selling a successful business, are you seeing any emerging trends in terms of how they're approaching their investment portfolios? Absolutely. There, there are some new and some old. You know, the, the old, and this is outside of what you know, one would do in terms of diversifying a portfolio mm -hmm. and just, you know, having the typical thing. I think the question speaks to what are some interesting ideas that people might be doing. And so the old, um, you know, kind of thing that people tend to do and it's human nature is that you invest in what you know. Mm -hmm. um, you do direct deals in the industry in which you're most familiar. Sure. So if someone made money in media, they're probably going to have uh, an ecosystem and a, a group of friends that are in media, and that's where the direct deals will be, and that's where they're going to, even though it, they know intuitively it, it, it sounds like they're not diversifying and they're doubling down, it's what they understand and it's what they know. Sure. They're, they're tech you know, executive, they're going to invest in technology. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, some of the newer trends would be uh, social impact, you know, uh, socially responsible investing. And this is the idea of tying uh, values with how you invest. And this is definitely, uh, you know, something that we're seeing. It's important. Uh, the, the challenge that families uh, have, as well as institutions have, it's a very difficult thing to scale. It's a hard thing to aggregate in terms of a fund because what is impactful 
to one person isn't necessarily impactful to another. Mm. It's a highly personal thing. Sure. And we've looked at this. We looked at a, you know, our, our, our firm looked at a, a joint venture uh, a, a few years back. And what we realized was it was easier to outsource a specialist to, to kind of create um, an experience around what that impact would be hmm. rather than because we couldn't do it for all of our clients because everyone's different. It's too bespoke. That's, that's yeah. exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And then the, the very new uh, ideas that you are starting to see out there uh, that I'll call they're on the fringe and why are they on the fringe? Because, you know, that's why there's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, I think clients realize there might be some inherent risks associated with these areas, uh, whether it's legal or they're just newer, mm-hmm. but that's why there might be an opportunity. And that's the area of crypto uh, sure. currency, which is a buzzword. We see articles all the time. And, you know, the fact that not everyone understands it and it's fairly new also creates an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, if it all works out, it could be amazing. The interesting part about crypto is that we have actually seen the opposite or from our perspective, Some very successful founders of crypto um, firms uh, have uh, come to us to diversify some of their newfound wealth because they have uh, they've done so well that uh, they've maybe wanted to take off 50 million dollars right off the table and put it in a diversified portfolio, even though they believe everything that is still going to happen in the crypto world, just in case it's nice to know that, hey, I have this in addition to all the other things that I'm talking about that we that we do, which is kind of creating context and clarity to decision making around really having that business plan for your personal life Mm -hmm. and having a team of people doing that and all of those pieces, because now they are they're wealthy people with um, you know some complexity in their life so they're they're looking for that but the other part of it the other component is okay how do i de-risk my situation a little bit even Mm -hmm. though i completely agree that this is the right way and the only way just in case i'm wrong here's this spread it around yes yeah right right (laughs) so there's that and then the other is um is uh cannabis um you know there's obviously opportunity there that we're seeing um it is legal in some states. It's mm-hmm. not legal federally. Uh, it is not, and because it's not legal federally, there are banking questions and issues sure. around that, which is also the opportunity for some that that really believe strongly in it. Um, but you have some multi-billion-dollar companies with valuations mm-hmm. today, um, some of which uh, might even go public, you know, north the border in Canada. So, it it is an interesting space. Mm-hmm. It's not one that we are. Uh, today um, investing in on behalf of our clients, mm-hmm. but our, our clients are asking about it and maybe on a one-off, uh, this is something that they, we're seeing. Hmm. And families obviously have a longer time horizon than, than most investors. They can hold indefinitely since they're not beholden to LPs, but that can mean that they're not seeing returns for many, many years. So how are they addressing the need for, for cash flow? Great question. Yeah, so uh, that is the the magical part about having multi-generational wealth is that if you do want to have um, investments, you don't necessarily need to act like a private equity firm where mm-hmm. you're looking to, to kind of flip your investment in three to five years. Sure. Some of these families still, once again, the lawyerly answer, it depends on who you talk to. And some families still want that return and to see that investment flipped in three to five years. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to your point, there are things out there in terms of cash flowing that is really important because they are long-term investors. Mm-hmm. It's really about multiple generations. So Along those lines, that thesis is important 
and as important today as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. um, with the price of assets so expensive, the thought for many of these people is that maybe I can mitigate some of that price by just knowing and feeling that there is some cash flow coming out of that. Sure. And it, you know, at least psychologically makes me feel better. And so on a liquid markets um, perspective, you know, what you're talking about, and these are the type of investments we're even looking at for all of our clients that we have uh, mm -hmm. as, as a core would be what we would define as defensive equities. So mm -hmm. these are the companies Warren Buffett classifies as uh, companies with moats around them. So okay. they're big multinationals that either pay a dividend or have a balance sheet with so much cash that they have the ability to pay a dividend. So very conservative companies. Typically, they do well in most cycles. Mm -hmm. They're not going to hit it the lights out like a high flyer in a bull market, mm -hmm. but they're going to be steady eddies through every market. So sure. multi-generational families love those kind of defensive equities, just like Warren Buffett does. So that's understandable. So that's on the liquid side. Um, in terms of you know things that you may not know, it would be the private uh, direct investments like parking lots, hmm. uh, storage facilities, uh, and obviously commercial real estate. Um, you know, hmm. commercial real estate, even with uh, cap rates that are you know challenged, uh, it's still something that has done incredibly well. It's an asset that you know these families, as you alluded to, are going to hold on for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's buy and hold, and you know, many of them don't plan on selling. And so the idea that they now have an asset that will appreciate long term, mm -hmm. that they can actually get a coupon, it's a great thing. Um, car washes and, uh, mm -hmm. and storage facilities are also things that, that cash flow really, really well. And, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't sound like a very sexy investment, yeah. but it's, it's actually a, a fairly conservative one and uh, does very well over time. Huh. Yeah, we actually, it's interesting, um, a few years back, one of our clients, we helped him uh, purchase an airplane and we had to find the right geography and all of that. And he was uh, someone that had recently um, retired. He was a CEO of a publicly traded company. So he was used to having a G5. Okay. He wanted to still have a G5. And so how did we, how could we optimize that transaction? So we helped him uh, purchase the plane. We found out the, the right state, if you will, that it made it from a cost perspective, from a tax perspective. Mm -hmm. That was the right state. It was somewhere in the Southeast. Uh, we then um, set up a, a corporation um, on his behalf and ended up buying storage facilities within the corporation. And so the storage facilities, much like his old company, helped to subsidize from a cash flow perspective the oh. use of the airplane. Oh, interesting. In addition, there were tax deductions that could be utilized for the corporation for the airplane. So it was really, really interesting. But oh. yeah, yeah, storage facilities, you would never think. Yeah. And, and not necessarily to marry storage facilities with airplanes, right. private airplanes. <laughs> but what well, we did, oh. and uh, it's interesting. Fascinating, yeah. Well, switching gears a bit, um, in reading about you prior to this interview, I learned that you had made quite the career transition. Um, before entering financial services, you were an Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist, and you even participated as a torchbearer in the ceremonial <laughs> torch relay during the 92 uh, Olympics in Barcelona, yes. as I read in your bio. How does the experience of carrying the torch differ from what we <laughs> see on television? Thank you for asking. Um... You know, I'm now at a point where I've done this, I've been in the financial services industry much longer than I had 
done, you know, my old career. And so sure. it's, uh, it's kind of a, an old life, but one that I, I now like kind of smile and I wouldn't mind sharing. So that, that's fine. For a while, I almost like hit it. Okay. You know, because it was like, you know, ugh, guy used to be a sportscaster or carry the Olympic torch. Like, what's his credibility? Mm. <laughs> uh, what a good conversation started. That, that, sure. there, there, there you go. <laughs> so, um, yeah, first the Olympic torch. Uh, what an amazing honor. And it wasn't because I was, you know, anyone really, um, you know, I had done anything special other than I was the local guy that worked at an NBC station and NBC carried the Olympics. Okay. And so... I uh, was fortunate and honored to carry the Olympic torch uh, through um, the streets of San Jose. Um, I think it was a quarter of a mile. Uh, you actually um, have the ability to, um, to purchase the, uh, the torch. Huh. So, so the torch, it's the flame that comes from Olympia, Greece. Uh, that is actually passed from person to person until it reaches the Olympic Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, but each each individual carries their own torch. And so that was a unique thing that I didn't realize. And so we all kind of got into these little uh, buses. We had our little uniforms on. Everyone had their little torch. You got in your little spot. You ran a, a quarter of a mile. And then afterwards, it was really a, a, a very unique thing because I had the opportunity to buy it, which I, I ended up doing. You oh, buy it cool. from the Olympic Committee. And then I'm like, what do I do with the torch? And so my uh, my maternal grandfather, who I was named after, was actually born um, in Greece. And uh, there is, were Sephardic Jews on that side. Mm. And so um, he was a, a great businessman as well as a, a philanthropist. And he had uh, started many years ago a... Um, a home for the age, aged for um, uh, Sephardic Jews in Brooklyn. And everyone that was there um, actually spoke this ancient language of Ladino. They were all from that similar region of Greece and mm. the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And I thought, you know, wow, what, what an amazing circle if I could do that. And so, you know, ended up um, that, that torch sits in the lobby in my, my grandfather and my grandmother's name. So it was one of the cooler things I was able to do as a young person. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Oren. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.